This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, just how dangerous are even small amounts of alcohol in pregnancy? Research shows it can set children up for unusual behaviours with alcohol while they're still very young. What help is, uh, is there out there for women with substance use disorders and their babies? And why are some falling through the cracks? Could a high-carbohydrate, low-protein diet be linked to a healthier life? Well, it depends on what kind of carbs you're talking about. While New South Wales is still trying to contain COVID cases, the Prime Minister last week outlined a four-stage pathway out of the pandemic, but no clear timeline or goals yet. Singapore is already somewhere between stages two and three in what our plan envisages for next year. They've announced a new strategy to live with the virus, but it requires a layered public health response and, most importantly, continuing their high vaccination rates. Professor Raina McIntyre is head of the biosecurity programme and a vaccine expert at the Kirby Institute and the University of New South Wales. She thinks herd immunity can happen in Australia, but will require vaccinating kids too. I still believe herd immunity is achievable. We've achieved it for measles, which has a much higher infectiousness, and we've achieved it for polio with very high vaccination rates. With the Delta variant, of course, which is much more contagious, you're going to need higher levels of vaccination. I would say 80% plus probably of the whole population, which means kids have to be part of the plan. What's your understanding of how Singapore approaches this? So their approach is, number one, to get their vaccination rates really high and protect their population, and then plan opening up society with the expectation that infection will come in. There may be new other variants that emerge in the future, but that because the population is highly vaccinated, they won't have deaths and hospitalizations to the rate that was seen last year. What are the issues in terms of opening up the borders to vaccinated people? It seems to be a lot of confusion around that whole story. So the the problem right now is that we don't have enough people vaccinated in the population. And we know that even being fully vaccinated, you can still transmit the infection. There's now real world studies showing that. So we have to kind of hold the line until we get our vaccination rates up. At that point, we can open up, but we need a global system for vaccine passports. And in the in the long run, that's going to be critical for mobility and travel and so on. And there'll have to be systems in place where different countries recognise um, the vaccination certificates of other countries. In the European Union right now, for example, they're only accepting uh, for their green card travel approval only certain vaccines. And for AstraZeneca, for example, they're only accepting vaccine made in the UK. So I think each other country that's making AstraZeneca has to apply to the European Union to include their version of the vaccine. So right now, at the, right now at this point in time, someone who's had the Australian-made AstraZeneca won't be able to travel to the EU under that system. But is there some transition point where, in terms of coverage in Australia, you can say we're at a safer place for opening up borders? Uh, yeah, look, I think uh, we've seen um, opening up in Europe, the US and the UK with vaccination rates, you know, around the 50% mark of, of two doses. But that's in a context where they've had a lot of disease. So a little bit more disease isn't making a big difference. For us, it will make a big difference because we've had very little. I think, you know, 70% plus of the population, which is why we need to be now making recommendations about 
Are we going to be vaccinating kids 12 and up? What about kids under 12? Which vaccines are best? And so on. Now, one of the features of the Singaporean approach is that they do have restrictions in place and they've got very sophisticated contact tracing and there are lots and lots of people in quarantine. What's your comment on the fact that you can't just rely on vaccination by itself? Yeah, I think we've learned about SARS-CoV-2 that nothing stays the same. There might be new variants, there might be waning immunity from vaccines, uh, lots of things could change. So we have to assume that we will continue to need other measures from time to time as we've got in our four-stage plan. In that interim period when we're waiting for high vaccination rates, we may need more lockdowns if we don't address hotel quarantine breaches adequately, which means addressing the airborne transmission. I think we need to, in the future, we will live differently. You know, there's kind of some magical thinking that life will go back to what it was before 2020, but it'll never go back to what it was before 2020. Some things will change and um, some of those changes may be good, some may not be so good. But, you know, a lot of viruses like influenza, et cetera, are airborne. The evidence has been there, but there's been a denial of it in the infection prevention control guidelines for decades and decades, which hasn't mattered so much when you're denying it for viruses that are not highly likely to kill you. What's different now is that with SARS-CoV-2, that denial was unsustainable because the death toll was just too high. So I think now that the world has faced this fact that respiratory viruses, you know, they come out in, in your respiratory secretions, are largely airborne. And we saw a massive impact on other viruses like flu. There was virtually no flu last year. Um, and that's from all the COVID measures. So I think an understanding of safe air. In society, we come to demand safe water, but we accept really contaminated, dirty, shared air because we don't address ventilation, we don't measure ventilation, we don't accredit indoor spaces for the safety of the air. I think all those things will change. And when we do that, when those changes come, we'll have more freedom. Professor Raina McIntyre, who's head of the biosecurity program at the University of New South Wales and the Kirby Institute. And there'll be more tonight on 7.30 on ABC Television. This is RN's Health Report, and I'm Norman Swan. This week, we continue our occasional series on substance use. During pregnancy, women are told to avoid alcohol because there's no safe level of use. New research has found that even very small amounts of exposure can lead to a baby growing up to experiment with alcohol at a very young age. This behaviour is known as sipping, when a child has small sips from their mum or dad's drink. And while it might seem harmless, it increases their risk of problem drinking later in life. Brianna Lees is a researcher at the Matilda Centre for Research in Mental Health and Substance Use at the University of Sydney. Tell us about this alcohol sipping study. I mean, it's, it's both fascinating and horrifying, to be honest. Yeah, it was quite a surprising finding. We looked at the relationship between alcohol use during pregnancy and the likelihood of the children experimenting with alcohol by the age of 10. But just before you, you actually go on to explain and give us the punchline, is this a well-recognised phenomenon, sipping? I mean, where does this come from, this idea of sipping, that you thought this was an outcome you should be looking at? Yeah, there's other data to suggest that if children begin sipping and experimenting with alcohol at a young age, they're more likely to go on to experiment more heavily with alcohol throughout their teenage years. So to go on to binge drink at a young age. And we also know from other studies that 
if kids are binge drinking at a young age, they're actually more likely to then go on to have an alcohol use disorder at some time in their life. And just describe the behaviour. What does it look like? So this can just be, you know, a sip of alcohol. It could be from their parents' drink. It could be at a, a friend's place. It's just, you know, having a sip of a glass of wine or a beer. This is a child who, you know, you might have taken your children to an adult party, an adult lunch, and the kids are off playing in the garden, but a kid comes in and surreptitiously has a sip of beer on the table or something like that, or there's a wine glass there and you find the child having a little taste. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so sort of that out. That's what sipping is, and you're looking at it in relation to the exposure of a woman to alcohol during pregnancy and around the time of conception. How reliable is that sort of question? Because people might not want to admit to drinking alcohol around about time of pregnancy. Yeah, that's definitely a challenge in this research. And we were also asking them, you know, to think retrospectively about alcohol that they consumed in the past. But the parents are sort of told that this is confidential information. It's not going to be linked back to them. And this sort of data is really helpful to understand this relationship. But there are definitely some barriers around self-report data as well. So given those caveats, tell us what you found. So we found that any level of alcohol use during pregnancy, so even low levels, having one or two standard drinks per occasion, was associated with a greater likelihood of that child experimenting with alcohol by the age of 10. So they're about 1.7 times more likely than a child who wasn't exposed to alcohol in utero. And was it dose-related that the more a mother drank in pregnancy, the more likely it was that they had a child who sipped? We found it was more to do with the length of time that the mother was drinking. So if a mother drank low or heavy levels during the early stages of pregnancy and then stopped, those children had a similar level of increased risk. Whereas if a mother consumed one or two drinks sort of here and there throughout the entire pregnancy, it was actually those children who had the highest likelihood of going on to sip alcohol by age 10. The other issue to explore here, I'm just trying to pick what could be alternate explanations to the alcohol. It could be that a mother who drinks throughout pregnancy has a genetic tendency to alcohol or the child's born into an environment where there's more alcohol around. There could be something different about mothers who drink during pregnancy than mothers who don't, which predispose the child to sipping rather than the alcohol itself? Yeah, yeah, that's a really important question. The levels of alcohol use we were looking at in the pregnant mothers was really quite low. So it ranged from one standard drink throughout the entire nine months all the way up to 90 standard drinks. So overall, that isn't a huge amount of alcohol. But in the analyses, you know, because it was such a big data set, it meant we could look at a number of different factors that might have been a confounding factor that was contributing to the relationship. We excluded any children whose parent had a problem with alcohol or other substance use to try and get at that genetic component. We know that alcohol use disorder runs in families and problems with alcohol use runs in families. So we tried to eliminate those children. And we also accounted for a number of birth-related factors and their environmental factors too. So as much as you could statistically, (laughs) you've pinned it down to the alcohol rather than another factor. Yes, yeah. So we took into account things like the levels of parental monitoring, how easy the children could access alcohol 
And when we took all of those things into account statistically, we still found a really robust relationship. So what could the explanation be that you've changed the brain of the baby in the womb? Yeah, so there's a few, I guess, hypotheses around this, and we definitely need more research. One possibility is that the brain has been impacted. We know that out of all of the organs in the body, the brain is most impacted by alcohol when the fetus is in the womb. Another option is to do with genetics. And so we have done some preliminary analysis around whether differences in the brain are contributing to this. And we have found that there is a relationship there where a baby who's been exposed to alcohol, the structure of their brain is developing differently to a baby who or a child who wasn't exposed to alcohol. And that does appear to be a contributing factor, but it, you know, is extremely likely and it's definitely the case that other genetic factors would also be contributing to that relationship as well. And the bottom line is that the relative risk was 1.7, so it was 70% more likely, but it's not you're not condemning a child necessarily to sipping in a lifetime of abnormal alcohol use, but it does increase the risk. Yes, exactly. Now, you've looked at the psychological behavioural and neurodevelopmental outcomes in children with the same questions being asked of the mothers. Yes, exactly. So we uh, looked at a range of different outcomes. So looked at their brain development, so brain structure and also function, so how well the brain communicates. And then we also looked at uh, mental health outcomes such as anxiety, depression, aggression levels and also impulsivity. And what did you find? Again, any level of drinking during pregnancy was associated with emotional and behavioural problems in the children. These kids who were exposed even to one or two drinks per occasion, they showed higher levels of anxiety, of depression, uh, they had more attention problems, were more likely to have a diagnosis of ADHD, and they were more impulsive and aggressive as well. And at what sort of level of risk, increased risk? Yeah, so we did see small effects, and the interesting part was that it was a graded dose effect. So the more the child was exposed to alcohol, the more significant and severe the findings. So in terms of ADHD and oppositional defiant disorder, these kids were about 30% more likely to have a diagnosis than unexposed kids. Researcher Brianna Lees from the Matilda Centre at the University of Sydney. Staying with substance use, there's a potentially massive issue in relation to women who are pregnant and are living with substance use disorders more broadly than alcohol, for example, opioids or ice. Experts in this area say more facilities are needed across Australia to keep women and their babies together when it's safe to do so. And research is urgently needed to know what early interventions and support these children need beyond infancy. Sarah Sedgi reports. We need to be creating a system where women are not afraid to ask for help. We need to provide more support for foster carers who are looking after children who have been separated from their mothers. Dr Stacey Blythe is a senior research fellow at Western Sydney University and a registered nurse. This issue is close to her heart. She's the foster mum of four children who came to her from the out-of-home care system. When I became a carer, of children um, who had been prenatally substance exposed. There was no information provided to me. I knew nothing. So using my, my research background and my, my knowledge as a registered nurse, I began putting together information. A lot of these children go on to struggle with behavioral issues, with educational issues. They have learning difficulties. Many of them have emotion regulation um, disorders. And it can be really overwhelming for a carer if they don't understand that 
there is a reason behind these things. She says every situation with a mother who's had a substance use problem is different. But when it's safe to keep them with each other, mothers and babies do better together. Some hospitals keep mothers and babies together, some don't. There's a lot of factors that come into play, including resources, and it has major effects on the baby. Uh, it very much comes down to which local health district you're in, which state or territory you're in, um, and, and who, who's working um, on the ground there. Is there a doctor or a nurse who is, um, takes the perspective of harm reduction or are they more risk averse? Are they going to support the mom to try and get better and keep the mom and the baby together? Or are they going to try and minimize any potential damage by separating the two of them? It really depends on who's on the ground. And it's the same thing with the child protection and social service system. Are they going to make efforts to keep that family together and build on their strengths? Or are they just going to separate them in an effort to you know, find them both stability but not together? We definitely need more programs that will cater to women with children, um, and we need them more consistently across the nation. You know, there's only a handful of beds in New South Wales where a woman who has a substance use issue can um, be at an, an inpatient facility with her children. Why do we not have more facilities like this? Not every local health district has a nurse home visiting program that specifically caters for women who have substance use issues. Why is that the case? And in fact, in some of the suburbs where we have the largest amounts of substance use, those are the ones that are missing these sorts of programs. So there's a real inconsistency. What also worries her is the stigma many women face, a major barrier, she says, to them seeking help while pregnant. It's something many of the women Kate Dodd works with have experienced. She's the manager of a Sydney residential drug and alcohol rehabilitation program, Phoebe House. Mothers can stay with their children while in this program. Our women are brilliant people. They've just taken some poor choices throughout their life. They certainly don't want to continue using drugs. Unfortunately, the judgment that comes from society is quite intense and very upsetting for a lot of our women. Therefore, they tend to isolate and they hide themselves away. So we take women who are pregnant as well. Uh, so we find that we have engagement from our pregnant women in the third trimester, which is certainly something that we're trying to change here at Phoebe House. We're trying to get people within that first trimester so that we can see drug use quite early. But unfortunately, because of the drug use and the stigma that goes alongside drug use, they tend to not actually engage in any health interaction or any health treatment. So they go two trimesters without seeing a nurse, without seeing a midwife, which creates a whole lot of other complications for mum and for bub. And what about what happens to those babies in the longer term? There are more than 3,000 to 5,000 babies who are born that we know of to prenatal substance exposure in Australia every year. So we want to make sure that these little babies have the best start to life. Dr Julie Uwe is a neonatologist at the Royal Hospital for Women in New South Wales. She says research is urgently needed because we don't know enough about what happens in the long term for children born exposed to drugs and what early interventions could make a difference. Our children go through withdrawal pretty well. The medical side is not an issue, but when they come back at three to four or maybe at school age, then they have very subtle but very concerning problems that if we were aware of the possibility of these things happening, we could intervene. Some of the most um, worrying things that are reported by the children, as well as the families, um, executive function problems, impulse control, 
attention problems and learning problems. Dr Stacey Blythe says those early days after a baby is born are critical to their development. And if it's not safe for babies to stay with their mothers, the care they receive needs to be as supportive as possible. More research will help, she says, as well as empowering the clinicians and carers with the knowledge to give these children the best start to life. For an infant, their environment is relational. And so the way that a parent responds to an infant lays down certain pathways in their brain. So, for example, if an infant cries and a mother responds in a nurturing manner, then a certain pathway is developed in the brain. If an infant separated from the mother and laying in a bassinet in the hospital where there are nurses and other parents, but there's no mom there and the infant cries and the mother doesn't and no one responds, then a different pathway is formed in the brain. And this is a really important time for any child is those first 2000 days and particularly the first days, weeks and months after birth. And if we're in a situation where we cannot keep an infant with the mother, then it's really, really, really important that we introduce a surrogate straight away. Sarah Sedgi reporting. And if you or anyone you know needs help, you can call the Pregnancy, Birth and Baby Hotline on 1800 882 436 or visit their website pregnancybirthbaby.org.au or the National Alcohol and Other Drug Hotline 1800 250 015. Proponents of the paleo, Atkins or keto diets will tell you that lowering your carbohydrate intake will lead to better health. Well, new research indicates that a high-carb, low-protein diet might actually be best for you, but simply looking at proportions doesn't tell the full story. Professor Steve Simpson from the Charles Perkins Institute has been studying different diet combinations in mice for the past 12 years or so, and he's found that a diet with just 10% protein, low-fat and very high-carbohydrate yields the best outcomes – as long as those carbs are in the form of hard-to-digest resistant starch. I spoke to Steve about his research and its implications for us humans earlier. If you're within the bounds of reasonable diet composition when it comes to protein, fat and carbs, which are the three principal energy-yielding nutrients or so-called macronutrients in the diet, then the mice lived longest when they had was around a 10% protein diet, which is low relatively, coupled with high carbohydrates and low fat. And that particular mixture generated not only the longest lifespan, but also the best metabolic health in middle age and early late life. But it begged a really big question, which was, does the quality of the macronutrients matter? Does it matter if you're on a low-protein diet, whether the carbs in your diet are easier or harder to digest, whether they're in the form of sugar or in the form of starch or in the form of really hard-to-digest starch that requires your microbiome to get to work and release nutrients for you? And spoiler alert, it does matter what type of carbohydrates you have. You looked at table sugar on one hand and then on the other end of the spectrum, this resistant starch is what you call it in the paper. What is resistant starch? The word resistant refers to it's resistant to host digestion. So you're not terribly good at digesting it. It digests very slowly and incompletely as it passes down your gastrointestinal tract. 
and it is still there when it gets to the colon. And what that means is that you've got food to feed the microbiome, the trillions of microorganisms that live down there and are, as we all know, integral to your health, your immune health, your gut integrity, your metabolic health, integral to your appetite regulation. So these play a very important role in our biology. And resistant starch is the sort of starch that's simply too hard for us to completely digest such that by the time it gets down to your bowel, it's still there and then is fermented by these bacteria who then release nutrients to us in return. And we're talking like whole grains, right? Yeah, so um, you'll find it in obviously in things like pulses and whole grains. As you might expect, it's the not impossible to digest starch like cellulose, but the tougher to digest fibre that you get in in many of the, the plant-based foods. Um, you'll even get it, actually, interestingly, if you cook, let's say, normal old pasta and you let it cool and then you refresh it with boiling water, it goes back to being slippery and yummy. Mm-hmm. But having cooled in the interim, there's substantially more cross-linking of the sugar molecules in the fibre, in the starch, and that makes it hard to digest. So you can turn a less resistant into a more resistant starch by doing that. I've heard that used as a tip for people managing diabetes or blood sugar, that sort of thing. These are the low GI, starch or carbs. So the measures of health that you looked at were metabolic health. So this wasn't so much about longevity in this study. It was about different markers of things that indicate health. So adiposity, which is just like fatness, uh, insulin sensitivity, so things that maybe are leading towards diabetes, liver fat, cholesterol, and then the microbiome, like you say. Yeah, exactly. We took the indication, the very strong indication that came from the earlier study where our carbohydrate in that case was largely in the form of what's called native wheat starch. And we saw very clearly that the benefits to midlife health of a low protein, high carbohydrate, in that case, starch diet. And that's, I think, one of the great problems that has beset more conventional views of nutrition is to focus on single nutrients and try and explain health effects in those terms. Whereas it isn't about single nutrients, it's about the way those nutrients interact with one another. And as we showed here, the type of nutrient as well as the interaction with others. Yeah, it's funny, like even at the macronutrient level though, um, maybe I just follow too many fitness influencers on Instagram, but this idea of a high protein diet as being the kind of accepted wisdom of what is going to help most with weight management is very pervasive. Like this is a really low protein diet they're talking about, 10%. Yes, which actually for remarkably at one level and perhaps unremarkably at another because we're both omnivores, mouse and human macronutrient ratios are are kind of similar to one another. We eat different foods, of course, but 10% is a low-protein diet. It's a low-protein diet for humans too, but it's one that sustains populations in certain parts of the world. So a 10% protein high-carbohydrate diet is precisely what you see in the traditional Okinawan diet, for example. And in many of the healthiest human populations around the world, they have a relatively low-protein high complex carbohydrate diet. This research has obviously been done in mice. Mice are really useful models for studying things that might relate to us, but they're not humans. How do you extrapolate this to humans then? So mice aren't humans. That's that's 
exactly so. Um, however, there's a couple of things that make my fantastic model systems. One is that we share the fundamental biochemical pathways that underpin metabolism. Number two, mice are actually very helpful in that although they don't eat exactly the same foods as us, they're omnivores and they have a macronutrient balance, which is really rather similar to humans. And the third thing is that you can't, of course, extrapolate directly from mice to humans, but if you establish a mechanism and a relationship between diet and health outcomes in these model systems, that gives you the power of prediction when it comes to seeking signatures that look similar in relation to diet within human populations. You can look at epidemiological data, you can look at global patterns of nutrient supply and mortality rates. We've done all of this and you see this signature appearing really clearly in those data. Steve, thank you so much. It's a pleasure, Tegan. Professor Steve Simpson is Academic Director at the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney and Executive Director of Obesity Australia. What do you make of that, Norman? Uh, well, you know, just as long as it works in humans, just got to... I mean, it's very sophisticated research, but you've got to be able to translate it to humans. What happens in mice does not always happen in you and I. The difficulty with humans is we live too long to do really good uh, longevity studies. Yeah, but it is interesting research, no question. Absolutely. Now for Health Report podcasters, we have our special add-on of questions. That's right. If you want to ask us a question, as always, you can email us healthreport at abc.net.au like Josephine has. Uh, Josephine is writing in about some of the stories that we covered last week, Norman, about type 2 diabetes. She says, as someone with type 2 diabetes in medication-free remission through a very low-carbohydrate diet, uh, the other end of the spectrum, it was frustrating for Josephine that our most recent episode only talked about low-calorie diets and about drug treatment. Josephine's experience is that restricting carbohydrates instead of calories is just as effective at reversing diabetes and far more comfortable and sustainable. What does the uh, evidence tell us about that, Norman? Look, there is some evidence on low-carb diets. The problem is sustainability, and you know, a ketogenic diet is not necessarily sustainable in the long term, but it does. It can reverse type 2 diabetes, um, but the quality of research is not brilliant. But it, you know, anecdotally, it does work. The thing with diets does always seem to boil down to the best one is the one that you can actually do. Yeah. And staying in ketosis is just tough. And your breath smells and you, you've you got to watch your weight as well. So losing weight is a good thing in type 2 diabetes. And in many ways, you get to the same point as you do with your, your weight loss diet. Um, keto, a ketogenic diet does lose weight. Well, it seems to have worked for Josephine at least. Yeah, so you've got, to, you've got to differentiate between, you've got to work out what's what's working here and what's not, and it may be that the weight loss is working too. Uh, Greg has uh, emailed in about grommets, which we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, Norman. Greg is 71 years old, has confirmed hearing loss. It's worse in one, on one side than the other. He has that thing where if you close your mouth and nose and blow, you pop your ears like you do when you're on a plane remember going on planes, uh, and he thought that it might be from a blocked eustachian tube. When he talked to his specialist about it, didn't get much of a response other than an offhand, I could put grommets in if you like. What do we know about grommets in older people? Well, eustachian tube dysfunction is a cause of lost hearing and can cause a problem in the middle ear because it, the eustachian tube um, basically provides air to the middle ear so it can function properly and you can get a very contracted stiff eardrum, which is not efficiently transmitting the sound to the inner ear. Um, 
And there are various treatments. One is regular insufflation, which is what you're doing there when you blow your nose with one nostril. You can either close one nostril and get a straw <laughs> and bubble it into water. You can pinch your nose, swallow and blow at the same time. There's all sorts of things that you can do, but very hard to do that all the time. You can take Walking around with a straw and a glass of water. People look at you weirdly when you do that. Yeah, it doesn't get you very far in the bar. And, <laughs> the, um, and then you can also take decongestants, but the problem with decongestants is that you can get a bounce back. The other thing that some surgeons offer is that you can actually uh, catheterize the eustachian tube and expand it. Um, and there are grommets, and I'm not sure what the result of grommets are in, um, in adults. And if you don't get a good response from your first specialist, get a referral to another who specializes perhaps more in the ear. Good advice. Uh, now, this question from Rodney really piqued my interest. I'm quite excited to hear your answer to this. Rodney writes that uh, he's under the impression that connecting nerves of organs during transplant is generally not required and hence not done. But his question is about if someone, with, if this is true, if someone with a heart transplant had a heart attack, would they feel it? Would they have the same symptoms as someone who hadn't had a transplanted heart? Or if you had a transplanted kidney, are you going to feel kidney stone pain, livers and lungs and other implanted organs? Tell us, doctor, what's the story here? Well, a kidneys and livers and lungs I don't know about, so that, but the premise is correct. So in other words, when they transplant a heart, they don't reconnect the nerves that are attached to the heart. Um, and the, the nerves actually do quite a lot of work. So they speed up the heart, they can slow it down. And what they rely on to control the speed of the, the transplanted heart is more the hormones that circulate in the blood and the natural ability of the heart to adapt. And um, so it's true that somebody with a heart transplant who's had a heart attack may not get the typical symptoms of a heart attack. They may not get pain. They can get pain. And there are case studies in the literature of people with a heart transplant who get the same chest pain as anybody else. And they're not quite sure why they get that. It's maybe that the nerves have grown back. They often get um, an abnormal feeling, an abnormal sense in the heart. They might get uh, breathlessness, um, just odd feelings that they, wouldn't, they haven't had before. And if you had a heart transplant and you get new symptoms you haven't had before, you really do need to report back to your transplant unit or your cardiologist to see what's going on. And if you're really worried, and it's really you're getting breathlessness, you probably need to turn up at your local emergency department. I don't know whether you get phantom pains with a transplanted kidney. Um, we might take that as homework for next week. Yeah, but nerves do grow. They can repair and grow back. Do they grow into transplanted organs? Yep, they can. And um, that's possibly what's happened. So interesting. Okay, Norman, I've got a couple of COVID-related questions for you, but I'll just remind our audience that we have a podcast that answers your questions about the coronavirus. It's called Coronacast. Uh, but Larissa's written in saying she sees a lot of people saying they're not anti-vaxxer, but they just want the COVID vaccines to be proven safe and effective, and they want assurance that long-term studies show that there are no side effects, which is obviously difficult when we've only been living with the virus for a year and a half. And so she's wondering, based on previous vaccines like polio and measles and so on, what's the ideal sample size to deem those safe and effective? And what kind of long-term are we talking to give enough long-term evidence that something is safe? Well, m most drug research does not go on long enough to look for long-term long side effects, including vaccine studies. In fact, the vaccines that have been approved for use 
have been approved at pretty much the same level of evidence that any vaccine's been approved. They might have gone on for a little bit longer to check on side effects, a few months more, maybe even a year longer, but not much longer than that. And so the sample sizes that you saw there with uh, the, these vaccine trials, 30, 40,000, sometimes more than that, in different environments, Brazil, South Africa, Britain, America, uh, etc., um, th- those are fr- pretty much standard sized studies and they went on a little bit longer than they probably needed to to be absolutely sure so they went on a a a couple of months that was insisted on by the regulators to make sure there weren't any near-term side effects that would occur at round about a rate of one in 40,000 and then what's happened is and again it's unprecedented in medical history is that as we speak, probably more than 3 billion vaccine doses have been given with unprecedented scrutiny. So we know now of side effects that we probably would never have found out about or not found out about for years because there's been such intense observation of it. The Astra clotting problem is so rare that nobody might have noticed it in amongst the noise of other clots. And maybe five years from now, a haematologist might have said, look, I've seen this clotting problem, and it seems to be related to Astra, and we've got it in two or three patients. Has anybody else seen that? And then a few haematologists pipe up. Same with the myocarditis, the inflammation problem with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. That might not have turned up for a few years anyway. So in a sense, you're seeing what used to be thought of as long-term side effects, but they're not necessarily long-term. They might be quite short-term side effects, but you only pick them up in the long-term because you're observing, because that's how long it takes. But we're in this intense period of observation. So the fact of the matter is that, um, in fact, there was an article last week in the New York Times where Eric Topol has been on the health report a couple of times saying, pretty much he was outraged that the Alzheimer drug that Sarah Sedgley reported on um, a couple of weeks ago, showing that it really doesn't have any effect, yet it's been approved for use um, at a huge cost. That got full approval, and yet Pfizer and Moderna have still not got full approval when the data for them is unbelievable, given the, the many millions of doses that have been given. Right, and I think when you understand that those fra- that framing, that reference framing, it actually can inspire a lot of confidence. And I saw um, the one of the co-inventors of the rotavirus vaccine, uh, Paul Offit, was quoted in uh, some American media this week saying, in the history of vaccines, side effects have always appeared within two months of administration. There's never been a case where a couple of years down the track they pick up something that wasn't picked up initially, which I found really interesting because that is one of the big sticking points, I think, for a lot of people. Yep. Um, I I get a lot of reassurance from three billion doses, I have to tell you. (laughs) For sure. And one last question, another COVID-related question from David, who's asking about influenza numbers and what the numbers this year and last year tell us about the effectiveness of vaccines versus restricting international travel and is wondering whether once COVID vaccines roll out more um, more broadly, whether we're going to have to choose a trade-off between managing COVID like we manage the flu where there are deaths and lots and lots of cases each year or not travelling internationally but keeping uh, close to zero fatalities. Good point, David. In 2019, we had about, during the flu season, we had about 300,000 cases. It was a bad season, mind you. 300,000 cases of influenza, lots of hospitalisations and quite a few deaths. This year to date, 358 to the end of June. So I think the third week in June. 358 for the whole year. And that's a combination of things. It's social distancing, it's wearing masks 
and it's, uh, our international borders are shut. But essentially, flu flies in, and um, we haven't had people flying in with the flu. Um, so there's lots of factors going on here, and on today's health report, Ryan McIntyre talks about needing to take, learning about this spread through airborne transmission, which happens to flu as well, and learning from that for the future, and maybe we go through some low flu seasons in the future. I thought that comment about how we wouldn't accept dirty water, but we accept dirty air was really, that was a real light bulb moment for me. Absolutely. And we just don't take it into account to the extent we should. Well, that's all from our mailbag today. Of course, again, you can send your questions in at healthreport at abc.net.au. And we'll see you next time. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.